These must be the Martians that Lopez told you about. They were infected on purpose. These are lab notes. This is Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the TV we're obsessed with. Right now, we're watching The Expanse. I'm Jonathan Gitlin, and on today's show, we've got an interview with The Expanse's showrunner, Naren Shankar. But first, let's have a little recap into what's been going on in the last couple of episodes. The only way to see what it's evolving into is by feeding it a larger biomass. He's talking about Eros. Last week, the crew of the Rosinanti, along with Detective Miller and an OPA raiding party, made it to Thoth Station, Protogen's secret base of operations and the hiding place for the stealth ship that blew up the Canterbury. Miller, stand down! Oh, good. The station is now under OPA control. What would it take to make you guys go away, Colonel Johnson? Weapons, money, political favors? My benefactors are powerful. Get his ass out of here. They breach the station and capture the scientists responsible. But when... Dresden, Protogen's head scientist, looks like he'll successfully bargain his way out of taking responsibility for his actions on Eros Station. Miller decides to take the law into his own hands. We're going to need complete access to the data, as well as the names of everyone responsible for setting this in motion. Done. This week, we get to see the fallout of that decision. A battle-scarred Rossi heads over to Tycho Station for repairs. But the bromance between Holden and Miller is somewhat dimmed, the latter no longer welcome on board. You shouldn't even be on this station! Hey, hey, there's something you need to get off your chest there? Get him right! Holden seems to be having a hard time coming to terms with the unfolding events, and now Miller's the one with a burning sense of responsibility and a need to do the right thing. Protogen scientists, on the other hand, have no burning desire to do the right thing. Were you there too? Mm-hmm. It learns, you know. It does something different every time. The more biomass you feed it, the faster it learns, the more it changes. So you fed it, Eros. A whole station and 100,000 people. We learn this week that they've all had brain surgery that's removed their ability to feel empathy. After all, how better to convince a bunch of really smart people to do a bunch of really unethical things? It also gave us a quick reminder that underneath that angelic face, Amos is not all happiness and light. It's coming directly from Eros. I've heard that streaky shit in bars. I thought it was just bad music. Meanwhile, on Mars, Bobby Draper and the Martian Marines are spoiling for a fight. There's no way this goes anywhere but war. I always knew Earth would strike first. Denied the chance to go after Earth, we get to see friction in the squad, some of whom aren't particularly happy that Private Travis was born on Texas and not the Red Planet. Marines, who do we fight for? Mars. Who do we fight for? Mars. But my favorite bits of episode three were the scenes with Cara G in them. I think I got something she can use. You spaced a Black Sky faction leader because they put a hit out on that woman. If they learn that you're helping her, the OPA will put a hit out on you. G plays Fred Johnson second in command on Tycho, a character that's probably going to turn out to be drummer from the later Expanse novels. As with Jared Harris's character, it's the off-key belter accent that really does it for me. But that's enough from me. Now let's hear from the Expanse's showrunner, Naren Shankar. Hi, is that Naren? Yes, it is. Hi, it's Jonathan Gitlin. How are you? Hey, good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. You have a slightly unusual background because you have a PhD, yep. and yet you've been working in TV for more than a couple of decades. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about your journey from science to the expanse? Uh, absolutely. And by the way, just when I heard that uh, ours wanted to do an interview, mm-hmm. I was like so delighted because... I mean, for years I would read uh, John Syracuse's OS X reviews, mm-hmm. like the voluminous thing. So I'm, a, I'm an Ars fan. So it's, oh, awesome. Uh, this is good. Yeah, I had a, kind of a strange path. I started at uh, Cornell University as a, as a liberal arts student. I was like studying French literature and medieval studies in the College of Arts and Sciences. But at the same time, I was like my whole life I'd loved science and mathematics. And so in my second year there, I decided to transfer into engineering. 
and it was you know probably a little bit more reasonable to to have employment prospects as an engineer as opposed to a medieval studies major, I suppose. But what happened was I stayed there through my undergraduate degree, stayed there for graduate school. But as I was writing my dissertation, I just started gravitating back to arts and I started taking courses in literature and history, which I had always loved. And by the time I finished, I had decided I didn't want to be an engineer anymore. Mm -hmm. And I had a couple of friends who had come out to Los Angeles. We, We were in a literary society together. And they had come out to Los Angeles to be in the film business. And they said, why don't you come out to, uh, to L.A. and be a screenwriter? And I was like, that sounds fantastic. I had no idea what that meant. And they were just breaking into the business. But I, I literally kind of threw a couple of suitcases into my car. And uh, I drove away from my home after I got my, my Ph.D. And my parents were so sweet about it. Years later, my mom said, like, after your car drove out of sight, I burst into tears. <laughs> <laughs> because it was a, a, a field that... Had you know, it didn't have a lot of cultural reference points. Uh Um, I'm East Indian, and my parents are you know that particular ethnic grouping is you know doctor, lawyer, engineer, business. It's like you know pretty much what you do, and getting an education is important. So this notion that I wanted to go off and throw that away was somewhat antithetical to their way of thinking. But yeah, I mean, I, and I got very lucky. I mean, one of my friends um, that, that I was talking about out in L.A. was Ron Moore. Mm-hmm. And he, he was the one who encouraged me to come out. A, fr- a mutual f- friend of both of ours had encouraged him to come out to L.A. And so I spent a you know, number of weeks on the couch in his rented house in Burbank. And through him, I got a chance to get a script to Star Trek The Next Generation. And that got me uh, an internship through the Writers Guild. And I got to hang around. And they hired me as a science consultant because of my background. And... You know, long story short, within about a year and a half or so after I came out, they had given me the opportunity to write a script, and that led to more, and then I was on staff. And that was like 1991, and so I've been working since then. You mentioned Ron Moore, and I think yeah. everyone listening to this podcast um, will will know him as the, um, the man behind some of the more interesting seasons of, of Deep Space Nine. Absolutely, and of course the he, who uh, um, BSG yes created Galactica, which was which I consider to be kind of a masterpiece, frankly. Yeah, yeah. So that's the story. That's how I wound up in this strange place. <laughs> when you think of science fiction properties, the Expanse and Star Trek, in some ways, couldn't really be further apart. I mean, particularly, I'm thinking of things like the way they depict technology. But I think, in other ways, maybe, and particularly with some of the darker seasons of DS9, or you know, episodes where you explore the the dark underbelly of Starfleet's utopia, maybe there are some parallels between the universe and Expanse. Is the contrast or the similarities between the shows something that that you're interested in? You know, not consciously. I mean, there there's such different things. I think that. The things that people remember about Star Trek, and, and maybe not specifically Deep Space Nine, I was on Next Generation, that was that was my show. Star Trek was, I think, essentially allegorical. Yeah, and that's sort of how, how the stories were approached, you know, for the most part. It dealt specifically with issues, I think, you know, especially Next Generation. And it had a very loose relationship with technology. I mean, they hired me, you know, I, I, was, I was brought in as a science consultant, I think, in season four or five of, of Next Generation. It wasn't about science. What it was, it was about what I kind of described as spray-on science fiction, which was just a lot of technical-sounding jargon that didn't really mean a whole lot. And also to maintain semi-consistency with the fake technology of the Star Trek world. Mm-hmm. And Deep Space Nine became much more of a much more of a war story. I mean, that's really what Ron wanted to do and. and uh, in, in the latter seasons of Deep Space Nine, in particular, I feel, and that's that. I think you could probably find a lot of you know early connections and threads to the stories of Battlestar Galactic. I think you can see some of those in Deep Space Nine, 
for sure. But The Expanse is a very different beast. What was attractive about it, and, and I've been away from science fiction for quite some time, actually. What I found interesting about The Expanse was it was about limitations. I mean, it, yes, it was about the colonization of the solar system. Yes, it was about a lot of technological fixes to things. But at the same time, it was humanity restricted to the solar system, where the actual laws of physics were obeyed, and, and all of those limitations were part and parcel of the universe. And that I felt was very interesting and different and attractive because my very first impression of it, after reading the original pilot script that was written by Mark Fergus and Hawk Osby, who wrote Children of Men, which is mm -hmm. a movie by, by the way I love, which is one of the reasons I actually took the job. It was an opportunity to make space a character mm -hmm. in a way that I'd never seen it done before, where the, the hostility of the environment was you know, front and center, where you know, the limitations of oxygen and water and, and just the speed at which objects travel. All of those things were part of the drama. And it really felt like this was a chance to make a science fiction show in a way that just, frankly, had not been done before. My next question, I guess, was, was going to be what drew you to the show. I, I think you've touched a little bit on that. You got a copy of the pilot script and, and that piqued your interest. Had you read the books beforehand or have you, had, had you read any of them? No, I hadn't read any of them. And like I said, I, I kind of avoided science fiction. I mean, for many, many years after Battlestar Galactica, the sci-fi channel had, had kind of, I felt like it had lost its way. Mm -hmm. And they had just run away from doing interesting material. And every time I'd get a script from them, I'd, I'd go like, Ugh, this is no good. And my agent sent me The Expanse. I literally saw that it was the sci-fi channel, and I pushed the button and I sent it to the trash. <laughs> and then my agents called me like three weeks later and said, no, please read the script. And I saw it was by Mark and Hawk, and that was Children of Men. And then I read it, and I was like, wow, sci-fi is really making a different kind of a show and they were because the entire regime had changed, and they had really had decided to embrace what they are. And that's, you know, Bill McGoldrick and Dave Howe and all of the guys and, and sort of their teams, have, they, they really decided that they wanted to be something new. Right. And that, I found, was very, very attractive. And after I read the original pilot, then I went back to the books. And again, you can see in those books, you know, all the things that I'm talking about, which, which is that this was just a different take on a space story. And, and yeah, I mean, it, it's got operatic elements. It's got a big epic scope. I think the, you know, we're very flattered to get, you know, comparisons occasionally, you know, to Game of Thrones and space and things like that. I, it's certainly the storytelling and certainly the way we've adapted it, I think, is, is certainly in that spirit. But it really was an opportunity to do something that I had not seen on television and certainly at a high level. And, and Alcon Television, who is the studio that produces it, they were really, they wanted to make something big and, and they were willing to put the money behind it to do it right, which was a big concern of mine. I did not want this thing to look cheap. And yeah, so, so here we are. Tell me a little bit about how the dynamic works between you as the showrunner um, and mm -hmm. then obviously um, Dan and Ty, who are the, the book's authors, are also quite heavily involved in the, in the writing room. Um, mm -hmm. And then you have Mark and Hawk as well. You as the showrunner, am I correct in thinking you, you have creative control of everyone. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what the showrunner is. I mean, that's, you know, that television shows are, are designed that way for a reason, mm -hmm. you know, and Mark and Hawk come from the, the feature world, so television is very, very new to them. And, you know, they, they're not trained to think the way that you have to think for a, a long-running television show. Like, the way I described them early on is, like, they always wanted to make, like, whatever the, whatever script was, like, they wanted to have, like, a big sort of action-y kind of an end to the episode in the last portion of it. And I was like, First of all, we can't produce it. Second of all, it's like <laughs> it's not necessary. I think their original plan is, if I'm remembering correctly, was 
they wanted to do the entire Leviathan Wakes in like in like a few episodes, mm-hmm. like like four episodes. They want to just kind of burn through. It's like I was and like, it's a what? thick book. <laughs> it's a gigantic book. And so one of my first things I said is I said, look, I said, guys, this is like there's so much material here. What television does well is slows the story down, really drills into characters. I said, what I think we can do with 10 episodes is here. And it was literally on day one. I said, I think this is where we should stop it. And that's actually where we did end up stopping season one mm-hmm. with the, the escape from Aerostation. The funny thing about, to switch over to Ty and Daniel, Ty worked for George R. R. Martin. So he got a, a front row seat to the, the beginning of uh, Game of Thrones. And so he understood how that adaptation worked. But when I decided to take the job, Sharon Hall, who was the president of Alcon Television at the time, said, oh, and by the way, the book authors are going to be in the room with you. And I was like, wow, you sure that's a good idea? <laughs> and <laughs> it turned out to be a great idea because Ty and Daniel were very cognizant of the fact that this was adapting their work for a different medium. Mm-hmm. And they understood the things that you have to do or, or they were willing you know, to, to understand it that way. So they weren't going to be precious about things. Do you think and, some of that flexibility comes from you know, the, the incredibly long gestation and the fact that, you know, originally the universe was created to be a video, an MMO video game. You know what? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure that they're also such incredibly good guys. And, and by the way, this is true. Like Mark and Hawk are, are like the nicest dudes. Ty and Daniel are the nicest people. And it's like, I, I'm at a point in my career where like one of the very important things is like, I don't want to work with assholes anymore. Mm-hmm. I've done my share. And it's like having, sitting down with these guys, it was like, it was very clear, very quickly that all these guys were interested in was wanting was making a good show. And that's a hugely, hugely important and wonderful thing. I mean, I, I think in that same first meeting when I, was, when I was talking about like where I felt the season could go and how much we could do, the thing I said to Ty and Daniel was I said, well, okay, like in, in Leviathan Wakes, Alex, Holden, Naomi, uh, Amos, they all know each other. Like they've known each other for years. So everybody knows everything about everybody else. I said, guys – the characters that you have on page one of your book, I'd like to get to that relationship maybe about two or three seasons in. And I said that we have the ability, because of the storyline itself, these five people get put on this shuttle and their ship blows up. It's the most natural thing to have people who don't really know each other. That is the joy of a television show is understanding them and learning about each of them as the show goes on. And then secondarily, what sort of happened was you know, the book has like these throwaway things in it, which mm-hmm. are, you know, like a paragraph that talks about how a, a rock hopper, you know, was hurled a pile of ore at a Martian ship and was blasted to smithereens. It's like a two sentence thing in a, in a story and uh, in, the, in the middle of Leviathan Wakes. And I was like, well, that sounds like an interesting story. Why don't we tell that story? Because that's really about like sort of what's going on with, you know, the oppression of the Martians and the Belters. So that became an entire B story in episode six. And another thing that happens, like we meet a character, Fred Johnson, in his story. And I only read Leviathan Wakes. And I said, well, what's this guy's deal? And they start telling me like all this detail about Fred Johnson. I'm like, why the fuck isn't that in the book? And they go, oh, no, it is in the book. It's in this novella, The Butcher of Anderson Station. I go, they're novellas? And they go, yeah, there's all these novellas. And then I read the novella and I go, why don't we do that story? <laughs> and so what ended up happening was – just the fact that those guys were in the room and they and they had this entire world at their hands that I suddenly realized that what we could do is something very unique is not adapting the book. Mm-hmm. We were adapting the whole world because whereas the books were very plot focused, 
in many, many ways and lighter on character. The novellas were exactly the opposite. They were extremely focused on character and, and very, very focused in their plot. So the decision was made very early on to marry these two things, and we keep doing it. We've you know, pulled in elements of The Churn, which is a story about Amos. We pulled in The Butcher of Anderson Station. This season we're doing The Vital Abyss, and we're going to continue to do it because it's such a rich trove of, of story and character. And I think as a when you put those two things together, I think you have something very special in terms of adaptation. And we've done other things, too. We've changed chronology. We've changed sort of like the motivations for certain events. I mean, it's all over the place. But what's really nice is that people, when they watch it, they go, this is really true to the books. And it really is true to the spirit of the books. What we keep trying to focus on is we're not going to break the big plot of the book, but we may get from A to C through slightly different ways. Right. And and that's what's great. With Ty and Daniel, I go, well, what if we did this? And they go, well, that's going to break these things in book five. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's not do that. But they also do things like, well, I go, wouldn't it be nice to have, and we did an episode where we wanted to sort of show a little bit more of the life on Sirius Station. And so it'd be nice to see some like aspect of culture in Sirius. And they go, well, they have these things called slingshotter clubs. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and then suddenly they relay this story and then we put it into episode four. You know, and then that's like a betting thing, and it's a whole underworld and a weird little hobby that these belters have that clearly spoke to what the belters were and how they, you know, felt. You know, there's their own particular little bit of expertise that shines a little bit of light on their culture. That keeps happening over and over again. And so, you know, the, the combination of, you know, the fact that, that I've done a lot of series television, Mark and Hawk have an intimate you know, connection with, you know, especially, you know, I think the Miller storyline, and Mark would probably tell you that's his favorite, you know, and Ty and Daniel, who built this world in combination with the rest of our writing staff, I think what it's allowed us to do is really bring a richness and scope and depth to this world that isn't often done. I think the choice to tell the same overall story in a, in a slightly different way. So I, I, I will confess, originally, I, I had a problem with that early on. I was one of those, but wait, that didn't happen in the book there during season one. Since then, I've come to terms with it. I think it's a bit like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where, you know, there's no one official canon. There's just different ways of telling the same overall story, <laughs> which is certainly something I think I'm getting out of The, the Expanse. And I know, you know, other people who, who have been devotees of the book, I think. Yeah, I'm not dogmatic as an individual. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like, you know, there, there are times when I feel like, well, I don't think that I don't buy that. You know, like, I don't buy the way this happens in the book, and we'll talk about it. And then they'll try to defend it, and I go, I still don't buy it. So, but what if we did this? And then we get to the same place and, you know, get the same point in a different way. And also, you know, the other thing to really, that's really important is the necessities of dramatic television, the way you want plot to unfold and pull people along, it's very different than in a novel. And so, like, for example, in the books, the crew comes to the Anubis after Aerostation. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's a big deal to me. It was like it felt anticlimactic because all it was was about, you know, just sort of like filling in blanks and sort of explaining certain things. And I thought, well, if they encounter it first, which is perfectly legitimate, you could build the mystery of the thing that you were building to at the end of season one. And so all the same things kind of happen, but they happen in a slightly different order. And so, you know, that's just one of the choices that we made that I think ultimately paid some real dividends for us dramatically. And, and then we've, you know, invented characters, like the character of Kenzo is not in the books mm -hmm. at all. 
and and he became a really interesting character all by himself. Is the show going to change stylistically? Uh, I'm just thinking ahead. I'm thinking ahead to you know some of the later books. Once mm-hmm. we actually find out what the proto molecule is really going to do, and that certainly seems there's you know there's a shift from there's just the solar system and it's you know humanity's first steps off this blue green rock of ours. Um, mm-hmm. But you know interstellar travel, you know because it's quite hard sci-fi. Interstellar travel seems you know off the books unless we're talking generation ships. Um, right. And, but that's not always going to remain the same. Do you think that opening up maybe of the galaxy will, do you think you'll keep the same tone or will that, you know, much broader, I don't want to use the word expanse, but, you know, that much broader expanse <laughs> with which, you know, the universe now um, encompasses, is that going to change the show, do you think? Well, you know, what I like about the show is that it keeps evolving. Mm-hmm. And I do want to capture that. If, if we're lucky enough to be able to do multiple seasons of the show, I think we have the opportunity to do something unique, which is to tell a science fiction story that keeps on changing, you know, sort of its focus. It's like, and I think that's incredibly refreshing. It's, you know, it's something that shows of a different era, like Next Generation, wouldn't even contemplate. The notion that you would be like, you know, not on the Enterprise is insane. Mm-hmm. You know, like, how, how can that happen? It's like, well, it can happen if you want it to happen. You know, it's one of the nice things about working in the shorter order Netflix style, basic cable style shows, you can make those decisions. And I think it just opens up new horizons and keeps the shows fresh. The trick is going to be, you know, and and the choices that are going to be hard ones for us to make are when characters drop out of the books, Mm because they do. It's like important characters drop out of the books. And if you ask Tyne Daniel, go, well, that, that story's done. It's like, it's not interesting anymore. We're going to have to make those same choices along the way. You know, and my feeling is, you know, let's not be afraid to try those things because those are the things that keep things interesting. Mm-hmm. They took the choice of, of keeping the focus on Holden and the crew of the Rossi and various versions and people coming on and leaving. I think a lot of people try to do shows like that and then they kind of get a little timid and step back from them because you don't want to change things or you don't want to break up chemistry if things are working. Right. But you have to you have to take chances, I think, especially in this environment. And generally, when you do, I think people tend to respond. One thing the show does really well, I think, is a realistic depiction of space and space flight. You know, mm-hmm. it's not instantaneous. Space is incredibly dangerous. You know, you, yep. small micrometeorites will puncture holes in things that you don't want them to puncture holes in. That that kind of stuff. Yep. I'm sticking to that quite hard sci-fi aspect. Does that create limitations or, or in some ways does it free you up? And, you know, the kind of, I guess, the challenge between, you know, how much budget you have versus how realistic you want to be on screen. Yeah, I mean, I like to think of it as opening up possibilities to do things that I haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. And it just hasn't been done on, on a television scale for the most part. You know, I think that you have to look back to like 2001 for, you know, space done correctly. Right. <laughs> I mean, that movie was made in 1968. Most television just shies away from it because they just don't want to deal with it. And, you know, one of the things that I love about The Expanse is this show does not look like, you know, World War II fighter engagements in the Pacific. And it is a beautiful thing. And every single person who watches it goes, that's incredible. This stuff looks amazing. Ships flipping around and things moving, you know, with apparent slowness relative to each other and gravity being on or off. I mean, it's I love it. And I think whenever possible. We like to play those cards, you know, on a physical production standpoint, mm-hmm. you know, you have to pick your battles a little bit. It's like when you really want to show people in zero G, but we have a scene coming up. Yeah, I think it's an episode of 10. 
that is about as trivial a use of zero G as you're ever going to see. And it's absolutely adorable. (laughs) (laughs) It involves Alex on the off deck of the Rossi and a can of beer. And it's fucking hilarious. We have several weeks to go for that one. I'll have to see if I can punch a sci-fi to send me a screener. Um, I mean, one thing, obviously, do you guys have a big sign in the, you know, production room say you know there's no sound in space in capital letters i mean that's you know such a simple thing that i think almost everyone gets wrong you know but we we don't necessarily get it right either i I mean it's funny one of those things we talked about it very early on like you know we wanted to do like you know actual sounds like when you're you know hearing like vibrations through a Mm spacesuit and we had all this technology of like we had these contact mics and like and we wanted to reproduce the sounds and the problem was it made everything sound stupid. Mm-hmm. It's like they were, they were walking on the deck of a ship and, and the sound was like, boonk, boonk, boonk. It sounded like, you know, like plastic, like two plastic bottles hitting each other in a scene that was really scary. And my reaction was, that's terrible. It's <laughs> <laughs> supposed to be like a, a kind of a horror movie moment. And then it just sounds comical. And then we tried to muffle the sounds exterior wise in space and that also made it made the drama like unexciting. And so what we did was it's a more subjective and atmospheric approach to it. Mm-hmm. We try to let the physics work in terms of motion. But when it comes to music, when it comes to sound, those elements serve the drama. Right. And so what I always tell our sound guys is if something is supposed to be scary, then make the sound scare the shit out of me. I use a, it's an old story that's often told in the film business, but I got the story from a DP years ago. I was doing a series called The Outer Limits, which was a science fiction anthology series on no time years ago. And we were in a cave and the DP's like lighting it up. And I thought it was like really, I was early in my career. And I said, so bright in here. And it's like, this doesn't make any sense. And the DP told me this story about, there's an old movie from like 1957 called Journey to the Center of the Earth with Pat Boone and and James Mason. and That's the one with the dinosaurs, right? No, that's, I think that that's the lost world. This is actually an adaptation of Journey to the Center of the Earth. Apparently, like, the director suddenly in the midst of shooting is, like, has a freak out. He goes, oh, my God, they're inside the Earth. There's no sun. Where's all the light coming from? <laughs> and the DP goes, same place as the music. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good story because it is about – it is about subjectivity and perception. So what, what we try to do is we try to use the sounds to convey something that's very, very difficult to convey, which is gigantic objects moving very fast relative to one another. As like it, it is the sound of a railgun blast going through a ship. It's like that was one that we worked over. I mean, like, you know, there's a, the episode four from last season where, where Alex is t- where they're in the compartment and then Shed's head gets blown off. It's not like it's blown up. It just disappears. Yep. It was there a minute ago and it's gone now. The sound of the railgun is basically, it just kind of like, because the thing is moving at an appreciable fraction of the speed of light, it goes right through the ship because it's pure kinetic energy and the head is vaporized. It's like, but just that sound alone is a really good sound. And I think that, you know, similarly, when ships move past the camera, you want to feel it. And, I think a movie like what we try to do, and we just don't have the time that you have in features, is one of the movies I think did an extremely good job about it was Gravity. Mm -hmm. Yep. Because they made a choice. They don't actually use sound design. It's very, very, very sparingly used. They use score. It's like so they use the music to convey sound. 
And so it's something that I think you can only do on a future schedule because you just have so much more time to actually write the score specifically. But I thought that was a brilliant choice. And so what we try to do is use kind of like a combination of somewhat musical sound design in conjunction with the score to convey the dramatic sense of what's going on. Because when you really pull all the sound out of space, it can get a little boring. We try to use it sparingly and effectively at times. Like when the Canterbury blows up, there's no explosion sound. There's, I believe there's just a musical sound there. The I, age-old tension of, you know, you want realistic depictions of science versus an engaging, you know, dramatic storytelling. You know, having done a few panels with people from NSF in the past, AAAS meetings, they'd be, you know, how to do good science on screen. And right. the, the take-home message was always, you know, well, people care about science, but it's more important that the story has to be good. And if it, if it needs the, back, the story taking a backseat, we're not going to do it. Yeah, I, and I do think that people sort of perceive sound, I mean, sound design and, and sort of process it. They process it kind of like music. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's like that's, you know, that's just the artistic decision that we're making is just for aesthetic reasons. But they did in, in Galactica, I think they took like the sort of the muffled approach on the exteriors a lot of times. We tried it, and I just didn't like it as much. Is that I, I think that the, this show is a little bit more on the operatic side. Right. I, I sort of felt like let's just embrace what it is and just go for it big time. And certainly things like space combat. I mean, you know, that's ballet, really. I mean, you know, it's all yep. ballistics. It reminds me, in fact, of the way it's depicted in the show. It reminds me, of, I think it was a Harry Harrison novel. Once everyone plots their firing solutions, launches their salvos, the battle is already won or lost at that point. You know, because right. you can calculate okay. trajectories that there's no escape route from. Which, I guess, whilst that works well on a page, you see how that could be a challenging thing to try and film and still make exciting. Well, what was interesting was when we did the battle sequence in episode four last year, it was like everybody launches torpedoes, mm-hmm. right? And they're so far away <laughs> from each other, and they're both moving so fast. It's like... So they launch the torpedoes, and then they have like a long conversation on the bridge <laughs> as Holden is like watching the torpedoes, like, you know, kind of cross each other in space. And then we cut to the next time you see them, and then literally the two swarms of torpedoes go past each other. It's like, <laughs> what was nice about it was, you know, that's, again, one of those opportunities where you can actually show how vast the distances are. You can actually show how fast things are moving. And suddenly the notion of a battle takes on a very different kind of a tone. And Mm -hmm. that's where you kind of go, wow, this feels kind of, is that how it really is? It's like, because it's way more like how it really is. So that's a part of the fun of doing the show. Do you have a favorite character in the show? Or is that like asking someone to name their favorite baby? Yeah, it's more like that. (laughs) I love all of our children dearly. Mm -hmm. But but listen, I, I think that one of the things that everybody has loved about the books, most everybody gravitates towards Miller. And it's partially because the Miller story is so focused in Leviathan Wakes, in the novel, and then in our first one, you know, more than one season, because it's got such classic dramatic contours. And the other arcs, because they go much, much longer over the series of novels, they become a little bit more, they're slower burns, you know? And so Miller's story is condensed and focused, and, and Thomas Jane did such a beautiful job with the character, and he's just such an interesting actor and just, just funny and vulnerable and fragile and tough. And it's like, just, it was, a, it was a great performance. So it's like, I think that that's, you know, that's one of certainly the most, you know, striking performances. Everybody has had wonderful moments. I could point, I could point literally to every single character and go, I love each of them. Was it difficult to write out all of Christian's swearing? Sheree um, does a fantastic job with that role, but I do miss hearing, I, I do miss the swearing. 
Well, okay. So how much of season two have you watched? Uh, I've seen the first four. Okay. Well, you noticed her language has gotten a little bit saltier. Yep. What happened was halfway through our season one, our on-air broadcast standards and practices changed. Uh-huh. And so it was like after we had like locked the first six or seven episodes, they told us, no, 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 you can use shit and fuck and this and that. It's like, we're like, what? And yeah, the Sci- Sci-Fi Channel had just decided to change what their broadcast standards were. So before we couldn't use any profanity of that nature, mm-hmm. and suddenly we could. And suddenly we could show nudity, and before we couldn't, it was like, we're like, okay, fine. <laughs> and so I, I think that people will see much more of the, uh, I know people will see much more of that in season two because we're just allowed to do it. Maybe one last thing that we should touch on, which I guess I'm quite curious about, is what sort of science and engineering advice, I guess, you know, kind of consultants you use? I mean, you know, obviously with your background, maybe that's quite minimal. You know, do you serve as one of the the sort of sanity checks on things? Or is that just a sensibility within the room? I'm obviously one of the, you know, (laughs) one of the guardians of that. But in truth, Ty and Daniel, they're both extremely, you know, scientifically based. Mm-hmm. And Ty in particular has exhaustively studied the physics of these things and how they're built. And I think that's part of the, you know, the, the game world building, mm-hmm. you know, origins of this. So Ty and Daniel, they're, they're kind of the guardians of this stuff. Ty, I'd say in particular, you know, is, is the one who knows how things work. They work because that's how they would work. And I think between the three of us, we tend to be the guardians of that kind of reality. So you never have to sort of, you know, throw someone's script draft back at them and that wouldn't happen in space. Well, no, we tell them, we tell them that ourselves. I mean, it's like, but there are moments like we've had to explain to the room and like, cause I, we were writing, I think episode six last year. And I said, just, you know what will be an interesting thing is like, if this guy, if this belter has this like, you know, twitching thing and then he just, he's so irritated, he just flips open his visor and then he actually pulls it out of his mask while he exhales and then he closes it back up again. And, you know, I, I used to scuba dive and it's like sort of like clearing your mask mm-hmm. kind of a, of, a, of a thing. And I said this in the room and people were like, what? And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, there's not that much air in your suit. As long as you exhale, you know, it's going to be fine. And surely these belters wouldn't care about this. It's like they live in space all the time. They know how it works. <laughs> and it was kind of like, Really? <laughs> just, just, just wait till they get to the, the cliffhanger for book five. <laughs> so, yeah, there is a little education process. And, and when you talk to people about how things move and why they move or, you know, like, you know, wouldn't they turn to ice when they go outside? It's like, no, not unless they're touching something really, really cold. <laughs> it's like because they would stay, cold, you know, warm for four billion years. It's, <laughs> it's so, but those kinds of things, you know, I, we tend to handle in the room. We don't really, we don't use any outside consultants. Okay. So I think that actually exhausts the list of questions I had for you. Thank you so much for making some time free to talk to me today. Real pleasure. Keep up the excellent work. Can't wait to see the rest of the season and then many more from there onwards. Well, thank you so much. I think you're really going to like it. it. We're really happy with the way season two is turning out. We're still finishing the episodes, but it, I think people are going to get a big kick out of it. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about all the television that we're obsessing about. So be here next week and we'll talk some more.